0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning, everyone. It's nice to have a full house. Um, Thank you all for being here. And I'm totally delighted um, that Corin, Charlie Picorni, uh, accepted our invitation to come and give us a talk. Um, Many of you know Charlie. He's not a stranger to this sangha, but I just say a few words. Charlie's been practicing a long time, since 1991, um, when he began Soto Zen practice at the San Francisco Zen Center and spent a dozen years, um, from 1994 to 2006, training at Tassajara and uh, at uh, Green Dragon Temple, also known as Green Gulch Farm. And uh, he is a Soto Zen priest in the Suzuki Roshi lineage, ordained by Tension Reb Anderson, um, and he is Tension's dharma heir. Um, and he's currently uh, one of the head priests at Stone Creek Zen Center in, is that Sonoma, Charlie? And uh, he also teaches at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, and I think he's currently teaching at, um, where are you teaching, <laughs> co-teaching your uh, Waking Up to Whiteness?
1: Oh, there's a, um, it's a course offered through Spirit Rock.
0: Spirit uh, Rock. Dharma. I knew there was a rock in there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: So I'm very pleased that he is taking time out of his very busy schedule of teaching and being a parent and a partner and all the other things that he's doing, offering the Dharma. So welcome, Charlie. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you to the practice leadership for inviting me to speak. So good morning, everyone. Um, It's good to see some familiar faces and some unfamiliar faces. Um, So this the title of this talk is embodying relationality. And uh, I think I I submitted that a few weeks ago and then and then I forgot about it. (laughs) But I remembered uh, on Thursday. (laughs) And so here's the basic story. Uh, I want to talk. I want to talk from or start from. So uh, a few times Suzuki Roshi talked about a bridge uh, just beyond the entry gate of Eheiji, the main Soto Zen monastery founded in uh, Japan by Dogen, Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, and uh, the bridge is called Hanshaku Kyo, or Half Dipper Bridge, and this refers to a story that whenever Dogen would draw water. From the river, running in front of Ahaji, he would return half of the water to the river, or the creek. And um, in the, especially in the last year or two, I've been having uh, deep feelings about this story. Uh, the first uh, few times I heard it, I found it, I I found it confounding. And um, but it's grown on me. And comes come has come to speak to me in various ways and i, I feel like this this activity of pouring back a half dipper uh, carries you know something deep about uh, Zaza and what it is to be alive um so i i feel some wonderful something wonderful this act and some expression of deep care uh, or a deeply caring approach to being alive. And then another expression for all this is embodying relationality. So Suzuki Roshi uh, said about this story in one place, this expresses respect for the water. This kind of practice is not based on any idea of being economical. It may be difficult to understand why Dogen returned half of the water he dipped to the river This kind of practice is beyond our thinking. When we feel the beauty of the river, when we are one with the water, we intuitively do it in Dogen's way. It is our true nature to do so. But if your true nature is covered by ideas of economy or efficiency, Dogen's way makes no sense. So if we think in terms of economy or efficiency, Um, We might think, well, I'm only going to use half a dipper, so I won't draw a full dipper, I'll just draw half, and I'll just get on to the next thing. Or, you know, I might think, what's the big deal with pouring water into the river? You know, why are we talking about this 800 years later when Dogen offered all these wonderful teachings? And I might wonder, well, you know, did Dogen, what was Dogen, how was Dogen viewing the water? when he did this, did he have some kind of special, some kind of precious feeling about the water or some kind of a little kind of clinging in there? Or, you know, did he think like, was he like relating to the river as a spirit? Like what what was happening for him there? And then embodying, enacting or performing being in relationship with the river. So a koan of reciprocity or a koan and a con of not just seeing or knowing or talking about a truth, but uh, doing the truth or embodying truth. Or You could say a con of not just feeling love, but love and action. And I would offer that this koan is not different from the koan of Dogen's uh, sitting or Buddha's sitting, you know, or our practice of Zazen or Shikantaza, just sitting. I feel something in Dogen's practice here um, that is about caring for my life and relationality. So, you know, why would we respect water like this? And, you you know, water can seem like this, you know, this clear liquidy stuff that's, you know, it's just an object, it's just something out there in the world that's out there you know but what is this water and so you know in Genjo Koan uh, Dogen talks about how we see water and one of the things he says is the ocean is neither round nor square its features are infinite in variety it is like a palace it is like a jewel and those last two phrases it is like a palace it is like a jewel is referring to a teaching of four views of water, and uh, so those are fish experience water as a palace, uh, celestial beings experience water as jewels, hungry ghosts experience water as pus and blood, and we as humans experience you know whatever our experience of water is you know, this we can drink in it, drink it, we can bathe in it, and so on. And so, who has you know, we can wonder, like, well, who has the the true view or experience of water. And emptiness is there is no true view. You know, the views arise because of the karma or the state of being of these, you know, four types of beings. And it's not that one is more or less true than the other. And then part of fully appreciating this is that to see that our idea of water as separate from our life is delusion. There's no water like that out there. It's only with us that this the water we know happens. It happens with us, and so we're part of it, and it's a part of us. You know, we give it its life as we know it and experience it, and it gives it our, us our life. You know, so we're, we arise and happen together with you know whatever water it is. <laughs> When water appears uh, separate or inert or inanimate or dead, you know, what we do with a dipper of water can seem trivial, you know. It's just something to use. And then we don't what we don't use, just discard. And when water is my life, how I handle the water is how I handle uh, my life. And then I have a different feeling about how I handle the water. So, what is uh, what is Dogan's feeling when he's pouring back this water? Or, I, you know, what is Dogan's love? So, I, and I feel you're you know not objectifying the water, not objectifying um, my life. And then the water in the river is not just something I use. The water is my life. Whatever I'm holding is my life whatever I'm feeling is my life, Uh, whoever whoever I'm with is my life. So, you know, how do we take care? And so this is, this is a caring for an ungraspable truth of, you know, reciprocity or mutuality. You know, and we might try to sort out some giving and receiving. But everything is actually going always. You know, and this is a, one way of seeing the emptiness of the three wheels, the emptiness of giver, receiver, and gift. On one hand, you know, we can see a transaction, we can identify a transaction. But um, there's also something more deeply and thoroughly relational that's not confined in this in our kind of uh, parsing of giver, receiver, and gift there's a there's a deeper reciprocity. And this is always our life. Each moment is a, a flow of energy of uh, each breath in and out. You know, and, you know, receiving a dipper full of water and pouring back half a dipper. Or your know, instructions for the cook, uh, Dogan says, let all things come and rest in your heart, mind. Let your heart, mind go out and rest in all things. Uh, My son, Loka, he's nine and a half years old now. And um, he has a set of blocks with holes in them um, so that you can build things and you can roll marbles through the structures, marble blocks. And so recently uh, he got really excited about something he made it was a structure that included a a marble jump or you know a leap, so the marbles would shoot down one structure, fly over a small chasm, and land in the other structure and keep going. he was really happy about this. This was an innovation in marble structure building. And then I went back in the kitchen, and then a few minutes later, I hear him cry out, "I hate everything!" and um, he was upset because his, his marble run uh, had stopped working. And so, um, and this is the thing about marble blocks is that you know every time the marble runs through the blocks, it changes the blocks. Um, and so then the next time, it's actually a slightly different marble structure happening. And um, if there's a really, you know if the, if the run depends on really precise placement, uh, pretty soon it stops working. And uh, and this kind of speaks to me of, of relationality. You know, what I do in one moment changes the world a tiny bit. And what I did yesterday might have been appropriate yesterday, but since things have shifted today, and in part because of what I did yesterday, it may not be uh, appropriate today, or it may not work. So there isn't, you know, there isn't a formula we can stick to. In such a kind of, um, as you know, as such a processual world, a world of process and relationality. And, you know, everything is conversation. Everything is turning together, shifting. In each moment, our life is a a unique and unprecedented uh, nexus, you know, right? dynamism of myriad causes and conditions happening uh, here. And so there's this, uh, this ungraspable depth of reciprocity in any act happening here. So I see Dogen uh, becoming partners with the river. And when I open to this feeling and this truth of being in relationship, I don't feel entitled to just take the water. I find my place is part of what's happening. And so in partnership or in uh, conversation, uh, collaboration, and mutual transformation. And so I, I I would like to literally enact uh, Dovin's. Embodiment of relationality, and I and and I've tried <laughs> pouring out some water that I've gotten from my sink, and it, you know, and then it goes down the drain. It feels, it doesn't seem to work as well. Can, I think it works much better with a creek or a river. Um, and still, is there a way to practice the spirit of this? You know, the spirit of pouring back a half dipper as I fill my glass and drink the water and regard the water. And as I kind of, as I meet my son, you know, every day and my partner and, you know, everything I do when I go to the store or whatever. How embody, you know, a deeper, fuller sense of relationality, Uh, how honor the actual life of being in relationship. Uh, I recently read um, that the number one reason white men or, you know, some white men who were surveyed for this thing, uh, white men give for not getting involved with DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion is I'm too busy. And this was among the white men uh, surveyed who could recognize the importance of DEI. And this really struck me. And in part because I'm a white man, and I feel committed to DEI work, and in part because I often feel busy, and sometimes maybe too busy. And so I started wondering about my kind of attention between this mindset of being busy or too busy, and DEI work, and more broadly, you know, embodying relationality. And so I've been feeling like, what is this? What is being busy? And so, when I'm busy, I may feel uh, stressed, pushing through many things. And even then, there's a, there's a being busy or being too busy. Um, I, I often feel like it's kind of viewed as a kind of legitimate or reasonable or kind of uh, you know positive state of being. And there's also some there's a kind of you know another side of feeling busy is I may feel important, I may feel valuable, uh, productive. I may feel um, powerful. It can give me a little charge or a little juice, or you know, I have a, I can have this a sense of urgency. Got important things to do. Got lots of things to take care of. And the mindset of busyness, you know, can compel itself, you know, into every waking moment, you know, with this kind of uh, chronic sense, you know, that there's never enough time to get everything done. And if something comes along, some opportunity comes along that's, that's good, but uncomfortable, I may find myself saying, oh, I'm too busy for that. I've got too many things going on. And I can feel in busyness, you know, a kind of a deprived form of meaning. You know, kind of a deprived way of mattering in life. And kind of a weak form of meaning that's you know enough to you know push me through a day, push me through a week or a year, but it's not a form of meaning that um, grows or deepens or connects. And kind of in general, I'm kind of viewing this kind of the mindset of busyness or being too busy as a modality of disconnection, a way that you know I, I and a way that I actually give up my agency. And give up my give up my actual freedom in each moment. And in kind of contrast to that, that's part of the reason why I feel like, why, I, why I see, you know, just taking a breath or just sitting still uh, is a potentially revolutionary act, where you know to take some space, you know, can uh, change my life and the mindset of being busy, you know, holding systems of suffering in place. You know, and uh, and like, you know, this is something I do, and it's something also that, you know, cultures do, or institutions do, or collectives do, you know, cultures of busyness. And and I feel like the culture of busyness is not open to change. And it's a collective thing of like not feeling space to move, or to feel, or acknowledge, or consider deeply, or, you know, there's no space for relationality. Um, You know, so when I'm, when I'm, when I'm busy, I'm not available for the unpredictable turns, you know, of an actual interaction. I'm not particularly open to being changed by what's happening, or, you know, being thrown off course or onto a different course you know I have an agenda I have a fairly narrow intense agenda and I'm not interested actually in the in the, the unprecedented and you know unknowable fullness of this actual meeting right in this moment And so you know when i'm too busy, you know, your needs can just be an obstacle for me, you know, getting what I'm trying to get. If I feel you're too busy, I can feel like my needs are just an obstacle, you know, in your way. You know, so how, you know, so this is, how do we actually show up for each other in a, when we meet each other? I may um, close my heart off if I don't want to uh, feel uh, pain or hurt. Or fear, or woundedness, or uh, vulnerability, and so when I close my heart off like this, you know, I close off my empathy, I close off or shut down, you know, my basis for compassion, and my ground, you know, for uh, caring, and real connection, and you know, disconnect actually from the fullness of my humanity. And so part of how I can practice with being too busy is to get in touch with this um, close heartedness, this kind of non-relationality and start opening to a way that a way of being that is less driven and more vulnerable and open hearted. And so how do I care for a kind of embodied intimacy with my heart center and attending to places which feel closed or tense or tight or numb. Mm-hmm. So in our practice, you know, breathing into these places, uh, sensing into you know tightness and grasping, becoming kind of scanning the body for tense tightness, grasping, or you know uh, dead places, places where there's not feeling. And then trusting, you know, just gentle, uh, thorough, caring uh, presence. You know, finding ways to relax and soften and open um, where I habitually or, you know, reactively uh, tense up or you know, close down. You know, so if I'm too busy... Uh, It might be helpful to just do less stuff. Uh, But even then, you know, what about the mindset? You know, how do I address that? And once I start working with the mindset, you know, maybe I don't need to do less to be more fully relational. Sometimes doing less, you know, is not possible. It doesn't feel possible. Sometimes it's not desirable. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm, balancing a lot of priorities, actually, I pretty much feel I pretty much value deeply, actually, almost everything I do. There's, there, but sometimes there's just a big pile of it. Mm-hmm. I can also look for ways to open a sense of spaciousness in the midst of, you know, moving through a full life. And so, you know, sometimes it might just be attending fully, you know, to one breath, in and out. Uh, just, just have let, allow that to happen throughout the day, and then we also we have our formal practice um, and our you know zazen practice. Uh, you know, where we sit still. You know, for a dedicated period of time. And um, I think in this context, I, I just want to emphasize that then zazen is not uh, disengaging or disconnecting. It's engaging more fully in relationality. Um, we dedicating time and space to our life as um, relationality, as connectedness. Zazen, disrupting the mindset of busyness. In Zazen, you know, we give up, you know, being productive for a while, we give up getting anything done. This is this this can disrupt you know karmic pathways of busyness and disconnection and kind you know can, it can be a way zazen can be a way you know stopping to pour back a half dipper of water and so rather than disengaging zazen can be an act of uh, resistance and a culture of busyness a culture of you know disconnection and disembodiment and in that in that kind of uh, context, I would offer that zazen has deep moral, ethical import, and because disconnection uh, can be a ground, you know, for myriad uh, forms of harm, you know, personal, uh, interpersonal, and systemic levels. So zazen as an embodiment of relationality. Uh, part of what uh, led me to uh, Zen practice and you know and showing up at San Francisco Zen Center in 1991 was a few months earlier, the beginning of 1991, um, I was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and uh, there's um, a room with Buddhist statues, kind of dimly lit, and almost like they were a kind of wooden town. They They made a little temple in the in the art museum and um, these statues had a big impression on me and I, I I think I saw like there was a deep peace and it was sitting in the world and I think that was what kind of really struck me was a deep peace in the world not above the world not in another world but you know totally here and um This reminds me of a poem, um, The Little Duck, by Donald C. Babcock. And this poem is about a duck sitting in the ocean. And uh, here are the last few lines. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he, the little duck, do I ask you, he sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. And so then this morning, I, I would add, and that is embodying uh, relationality. Uh, there's, a, there's an infinity of relationality in any finite moment of being. And zazen is sitting in and embodying uh, this truth. You know, it's not enough to think it, or to tr- understand it. You know, to be liberated, it needs to be actualized uh, through our whole being. And to be fully liberated, I would also add, it, it needs to be actualized through our whole, you know, relational life by everyone. Um, I heard you sorry so I thought, well, Uh, It's another way of connecting. And so, you know, in Fukan Zazengi, Dogen says, uh, think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Non-thinking. This in itself is the essential art of Zazen. So, thinking of uh, not thinking might be, you know, thinking that isn't apprehending things in terms of separation and disconnection. And then, you know, what is that Uh, non-thinking? And non-thinking might be uh, the thinking of relationality. It's not really my thinking. It's that, you know, what appears to be my thinking is the thinking of me happening with everything. It's the thinking of me in this room, you know, with these sounds, and this light, and you know, this zoom connection. And these feelings and sensations in my body. In the Zen poem, uh, Sando Kai, the harmony of difference and equality. uh, Sekito says, Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. And so, you know, as I'm walking through all the various things I do, I can see the mindset of busyness as focusing solely on uh, the front foot or the next step, the next thing, the moving. It's always moving and it's not, um, and it's the foot that's not in touch fully with the ground. It's not where our weight is, it's always where our weight's going. And the whole time, though, there's the back foot, which, you know, is which is where the weight is, and which is grounded. And, you know, for part of each step, it's unmoving. And it might be harder, you know, to get in touch with that back foot, you know, when we're feeling or walking. Um, it might be, it might be like the kind of the dark one, and the front foot's more like the bright and vivid half. And so how do we walk, you know, being in touch with the front foot and the back foot. You know, so, so there's like the, the busy mindset is the front foot, Zazen's like kind of like the back foot, or Zazen's, it's, it, it, Zazen's like dedicated to the back foot. You know, just the grounding, you know, the duck sitting in the middle of the huge ocean. And then, and so then we're, but when we get up from Zazen and walk through myriad activities, you know, how do we care for the front foot and the back foot. You know, so the front foot, you know, is moving forward, but it's grounded, even while it's moving. Or I'm moving. And even while I'm moving, I'm connected. I'm engaging in, you know, myriad activities. And I'm like, you know, pouring back a half dipper, uh, being relational. You know, so Dogen pouring back a half dipper of water, you know, caring for the uh, the back foot, embodying that sense of connection. Part of the uh, irony um, of busyness is that, you know, it has this urgency, which actually um, obscures, you know, the the real urgent stuff, which is like, you know, our life of disconnection or relationality. You know, our life is suffering and the suffering happening through us, you know, personally and collectively. And so how um, how, are, how do we embody uh, relationality? So I might put uh, my hand on my heart. I could look at a tree. Actually, I think is one way. Or look at the sky. Take a deep breath. Uh, sit zazen. And not doing any of this to get something, you know, just to be in connection. You know, any act of kindness can embody relationality, you know, can make relationality uh, real, real for us. In our, you know, in our uh, human karmic, you know, being. And alive, you know, in our interactions. Um, we also have our practice of bowing, you know, sharing a bow. A bow as a meeting, you know, of like this, like, uh, a wonderful embodiment of reciprocity, where you know, you're giving and receiving a bow all at once. Uh, also, you know, as part of our um, ritual practice, and part of the practice of this talk, is um, dedicating merit at the end. You know, so dedicating merit. Uh, another way of pouring back a half dipper of water. You know, dedication is this core Mahayana practice of embodying relationality, of making this ungraspable truth um, in you know in the world of what we say, see, hear, feel, do. So you know, waking up to a connection, you know, finding my place um, where I am and, um, you know, unfolding um, connectedness, you know, and and this whole practice is, you know, in a collective way, you know, actualizing connectedness. Um, A few days ago, I had a dream, and it was in the dream it was, I was preparing for some kind of underwater operation. And as part of the preparations, I slash, you know, we, I was kind of like a little group of me's or other me's, you know, wandering around the the site, Um, had to decide between these two submarines. We we had to use a submarine for this, but which one were we going to use? And one was really big, like, you know, 50 feet long. Um, It could hold a lot of people, but it was, it was big and it was gonna be hard to maneuver. And this operation wasn't like a big operation, it was a pretty small thing. So it was like, oh, it's gonna take a long time to use that big submarine. And then um, and then I slash we looked at this other submarine and it was much, much smaller. It was maybe eight feet long and three feet around. And initially there was like this thought like, that would be a lot easier to maneuver and complete the mission. But, you know, looking at that small submarine I started just feeling like how small and tight and breath, breathless it would be in there. So that's the dream. <laughs> and, um, and I bring it up just cause I'm kind of seeing the small submarine is kind of like the individualistic mindset of being busy. You know, it can get the job done quick, you know, but it's also, but it's small and tight and breathless. And relationality is more like the big submarine. A lot more people can fit in there. And it's it's hard to manage. It's hard to maneuver. And it's gonna take longer. So when we meet each other in relationality, it's alive. And it's not something either one of us can control or predict, it's not efficient, It's it's relational. You know, this is that I am nothing but relations to the core of my being, you know. Or David White expresses this as a conversational identity. Or this is is a no-self or emptiness, you know, happening through relationality completely. And we have to kind of contend with the fact that, you know, how we know the world is to some extent, or anyway, to some extent afflicted, you know, by frameworks of separation and disconnection. You know, apprehending relational process in terms of something like reified, static, individualistic. So that's our predicament. <laughs> and that, that puts us out of touch with our um, with our actual life. It puts us out of touch with how we actually matter, and how we and how we belong that our belonging our, our true belonging is unconditional um, it is it is just how we are completely right now nothing needs to change in terms of you know relationality so this embodied relationality of pouring back a half dipper is something i want to actualize in everything I do. And something I want to actualize uh, in the world. So um, thank you very much for your practice and for your attention. And um, uh, we can have comments or questions or anything uh, you'd like to express. Uh, Thank you so
0: much, Corin. There's a, there's a class that's meeting um, on Thursdays for six weeks and has been grappling with think not thinking and non-thinking. So just this past Thursday, in fact, so thank you. That was not a setup, <laughs> just a serendipitous thing. Um, and I see Rich's hand, is virtual raised hand, so Richard.
2: Okay, thank you, thank you, Charlie, for that wonderful talk. You know, in anticipation of your talk, I went and looked up that uh, half dipper thing, and I I found the I think the same talk that you found about uh, the half dipper that Suzuki Roshi gave in '65, I believe, and it's included in I think it's included in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he talks about the the half dipper and the waterfall at yosemite and um he talks about how i think he talks about is like how in the waterfall we're falling like individual drops separate but we're not separate and the dipper is like when you take the dipper take the dipper of water out of the, the river you're t- you're separating but then when you put it back you're re- recognizing your connection and it's like i said that's kind of like a metaphor it's kind of like a metaphor for life kind of like the waterfall of like we we feel like we're separate, and then we go back to the the connection, this this relation that we have, this that's always present. And so I like that idea. Um, I think that's a wonderful idea of separation of, of separation, and yet we're connected. You know, and, and I I agree completely with your idea of relationality. And I guess I, what I'm thinking about is like how you know we're in this class together at Spirit Rock. You're teaching the class. And um, I guess what I'm thinking about is like how as a white person do I recognize I I have to own my own whiteness, for example, and yet also know that I'm part of a common humanity. And I, I think it's a real challenge to one, notice my my racially, my my, my racial location and my social constructed place in a system of racism, but also notice that. That's just a fiction, and that really, I'm separ- I'm not disconnected. So that to me has been a really interesting uh, experience being part of that class and also thinking about non separation. So mm-hmm. um, I, that's just what I just wanted to comment about that. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, I I, I think um I think uh there um. You know, to be clear about my location in racial conditioning as white is—I um, I, it, it, I see that basically is part of part of, part of uh, appreciating how we are rela- relating and how we are connected, and that you know that we can be connected and in relationship, you know, across myriad forms of difference, and the acknowledging the difference doesn't. Isn't where the separate isn't the source of separation, the sort of, the separation is like and uh, you know the the diluted function of mind, you know, apprehending difference, but the difference is is fine. We don't need to get rid of differences, you know, or we can we can be completely aware of differences and honor differences in and as you know relationality as our embodiment of relationality. So Dogen, he, you know, he didn't have to like. He didn't like submerge himself in the creek. He could just pour back the water, (laughs) you know. And like we don't, we don't have to these. uh, And you know, and and, um, I think the other thing with, especially with race, is that you know it's it is a construct, but then it's a construct that's through you know human activity has structured our our world with you know huge amount of injustice. So we can't stop. We can't now if we turn away from. Dealing with the construct, we're turning away from dealing with the injustice. So we, we have to work with the construct, I feel like, in skillful ways as part of dealing with the injustice. Thanks.
2: Thank you.
0: Trying to monitor the chat as well. Bill Bill Harnew has offered his uh, thanks for your wonderful talk, Charlie, in peace. Jose.
2: Uh, thank you for the great talk um i was uh i i i very much enjoyed uh this notion of relationality um and i was wondering uh to what extent uh to what extent can i uh associate relationality with this uh, uh, you know more common notion of interconnectedness or maybe interdependency
1: yeah yeah totally i yeah i don't i don't really mean anything different <laughs> Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, and we, you know, in Zen teaching, you know, we, we just, we, we we try out different words to see how they happen, how they work. And and we use, we use we have the concrete imagery like they're pouring back the water because some, somehow that that helps us in our embodied life, I think, you know, or, or like, you know, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? You know, Jajo said, you know, the cypress tree in the yard. So, the cypress tree. It could he could have said any anything, <laughs> but the cypress tree is the one that kind of that became very popular con. Something about you know, like, well, a tree. And that's that kind of um, that that captures our you know our, our imagination and our life in a way that we're invited to work on that con, and you know maybe someone else said, you know it's you know it's the dirt on the floor. And, and that's, you know, that's just as true, but somehow not quite as, didn't, didn't capture the imagination of the tradition as deeply. So anyway, skillful means, I guess.
3: <laughs> Mako. Hi, hello, Charlie. So good to see you. Thank you. Good so to much. see you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your talk. I, uh, my ears particularly perked up when you started talking about uh, busyness. And I had a question around um, the kind of busyness that comes when you do return the dipper or when you do say yes to the myriad things that come through the front door. It's uh, it's one of these things where in the present moment saying yes feels completely wholehearted and just yes, (laughs) I'm here, you know, wholeheartedly. And then uh, and then a few days later or a few weeks later or you know halfway through uh, some kind of a commitment, you realize, wow, I don't have time <laughs> or or, or I'm, I'm, you know something has to fall So as you were saying, the the many things that that feel equally important right um, and navigating that, um, the, those those, uh, though I love the word myriad. we use it so many times, <laughs> but navigating myriad things and getting you know getting caught in the in the grasses. Um, so I wanted to hear um, you know what you might say about if if there's ever a time just to shake this this story a little bit of returning the, the half ladle back to the um, back to the creek or the stream, Um, When you when you brought up um, trying to do that at your kitchen faucet, it it doesn't necessarily have the it doesn't have the same feeling. (laughs) I I felt that, too. It's like, you know, maybe I've got plants above my kitchen sink. So there's that feeling of thinking of ways to have gray water systems instead of, (laughs) you know, all these things come to mind. But um, but in terms of. um, Yeah, I wonder if you could say something about this, the the. The balance between being busy with things that are all really important, good work, and and another kind of busyness, or like how to not how to um, really notice the creep of busyness mm-hmm. into one's uh, mental mental disposition and physical disposition, because like you said, when you do stop and notice the the the, ten- the tension, is one of the first things that one might notice. Um, with over being overwhelmed with uh, the the things of the world,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I I kind of feel like I feel like you just said it all, <laughs> but just like you know, just just I th- I think like trying to be in touch with the creeping of the busyness of the mindset of the feeling it, you know, and feeling like and and just having it be that inquiry that's living with me. Am I am I am I busy or am I too busy or am I am I here for this relationship? Am I here for this relationship? Am I here for this meeting? And because um, uh, I, I I guess my feeling is like you know we we can do a lot without necessarily having the mindset of being busy. And actually, there's some people who can be doing much much more than me, I'm sure, without being this mindset of being busy. Be, but you know maybe in a different cultural setting that you know they don't have to deal with. What we've been trained about being busy, Mm -hmm. but um, but that we can we can we, and that you know and basically you know not always but often I'm doing one thing at a time, and I can and but if I think of all the things I'm going to do, I that that puts me into the mindset of busy and kind of get through each thing hard and fast, and um, but if I can but. If I'm actually paying attention to what I'm doing, I'm, I'm usually just working on one thing. That's usually a more efficient or productive way to work on anything, <laughs> for me anyway. It's you know, I if I just give my complete attention to something, it'll I'll do better at it. And um, and so just noticing that, that that's actually how things get done is like not being crazy and thinking about everything, but just this and then this. Um, yeah. So for me, I, for me, I, I would just say I, 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 it's just a general inquiry of trying to feel into when 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 the mindset's coming on. How do I and how do I unplug or release the mindset while doing all this stuff? And then also, you know, and then sometimes saying no. <laughs> sometimes we say no, I can't do it, you know, and um, uh, and that can still be pouring back a half dipper you know, it doesn't have to be a disconnecting act. You
0: know. Thank you. Uh, Charlie, I wanted to go back to your son's marble shoot. That really struck me because, uh, you know, you're, I think you're, of course, right, that as we do things we wear, you know, we affect them, everything that we do affects everything in ways that we can't even perceive we were taught this we know this but i loved his teaching when he yelled i hate everything <laughs> because it seems to me that you know we get everything set up perfectly for our optimal functioning and that includes you know how we take on these tasks of busyness right you know and we think oh i've got i can do it i can fit it in here you know it's like and we have set up this contraption and then something shifts or Something else needs our attention. Someone else needs our attention. You know, relational, actual relationality appears and then the marble won't go and we yell, I hate everything, <laughs> stop functioning. I mean, that's that's a, sometimes what happens anyway. You know, this great resistance comes up to everything. Like, I don't want to do anything. I don't, everything, Nothing's working, you know, suffering appears. So I, I really thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it really also, I think, helps to kind of concentrate on this relationality, like the back foot and the front foot are in relation. You know, we, we read opposition, and then we pay so much, because we pay so much attention to where we're going. But without the back foot, we don't get anywhere. So, you know, I just think this teaching of relationship, inter- interrelationality is so, for me, it's sort of what's up right now. Mm. So mm. thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, that's great. Appreciate that comment, <laughs>
0: Ernest. Good morning.
2: Uh, uh, yes, I I've enjoyed your saying you saying about zazen as an act of resistance against uh, busyness and kind of processing that thought and you know it. It struck me that even if Zazen is one thing on your to-do list, if it's approached with the idea of non-gaining during that period of time, then it's still an act of resistance. So uh, I'm just I'm just thinking about that and I appreciate your, your uh, saying it that way because it gives me a little bit different uh, view
1: on it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great yeah and, and 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 hopefully we're not trying to rush through our as i was in you rushing rushing is another another uh, facet of busyness
0: any other um, offerings well thank you so much again charlie it's great to have you with us.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. And Charlie, the um the light on the back of that wall is amazing. During the uh during your talk it was um sometimes you were just like this glowing head and it was like (laughs) this bright red and other times the the shadow would go across and it would just suddenly become really dark and it's just I it was quite uh uh, mesmerizing. <laughs> See the color changing.
1: I think it's some combination of the fog burning off and the computer's light sensitivity, and 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 my white face and this red wall. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. I appreciate this chance.